welcome to Inside the Industry, a Philadelphia Globe podcast. My name is John Sager, and my guest today is film director Adam Lippi. I spoke with Adam the day before his horror movie, Wait, Wait, Don't Kill Me, premieres online through Phoenixville's Colonial Theater. Wait, Wait, Don't Kill Me takes place as a virus spreads through Philadelphia. Infected victims begin attacking other neighborhood residents, prompting the government to fence in the area and leave citizens to their own devices as they try to survive. We're here with Adam Lippi, the director of Wait, Wait, Don't Kill Me. Adam, how are you? I'm, I'm well, thank you. Uh, your movie is set to come out tomorrow night, uh, debuting at the Colonial Theater in Phoenixville. Uh, can we get into um, how you first started uh, conceiving this movie a, a few years ago? I know it's been uh, in, the, Se- in the works seven. for a while. Seven, seven, seven years. Yeah, it was conceived in 2013, and originally the idea... Uh, was someone had said to me that they wanted to make a zombie movie. And I said, but everybody makes zombie movies. You could just make a virus movie and and make up your own rules. So I proceeded to write a script in which I made up my own rules. And uh, initially it was an unwieldy 140 some odd pages. And, um, you know, for your listeners, they probably know that you can't make a low budget horror film that's 140 pages because that's two and a half hours, Uh, especially the way that I write, which is, just tons of stuff going on and it was filled with carnage and it was filled with as much death and violence and people would read it and be entertained but they'd be like well where are the characters and I'm like you got to get to past page 50 before any of the characters enter um who are going to be mainstays but yeah I just wrote these unwieldy draft and um eventually I pared it down and I tried to get the movie made initially in Philadelphia and that didn't succeed I couldn't get the cast that I wanted uh, because it, it takes place um in Nicetown it was uh, written about Germantown, uh, where I had lived for a time, and uh, I didn't want the people to look like what they people look like mostly in, in uh, horror films, which is a lot of screaming dead white teenagers. I wanted to look like what Germantown looked like, which is not like me. I know this is audio, but I am a, a, a white person. Um, and uh, so I wanted to have a cast, uh, uh, you know, to see what, you know, to be based on what I saw which was a Hispanic man in his forties and what married to a black woman and, and the, the casting cast mostly filled with uh, generally minorities. Cause that's what Germantown looks like. So it became a problem because nobody casts um, uh, nobody writes parts for uh, Hispanic men in their forties or black women in their late thirties, early forties. So therefore if there are no parts for them, they don't stay in the industry. So it becomes impossible. So I was able to get lots of the one part who's a screaming, you know, white girl in her early twenties, although she doesn't scream. Um, but that part was, I got hundreds and hundreds of applications, although I ended up casting it in New York, almost the entire thing in New York. And I thought it would make the movie in New York, but the locations were so expensive that um, it, it didn't happen. So um, I had, I'd done all my casting and then came back to Philadelphia and shot the movie here, but then just would bus in the cast and put them up in Airbnbs. It was the only you know, feasible way to do it. So um, it was, it was a, a, an arduous shoot at first. There were, like the first couple, you know, first 12 days were shot in 2015. And then um, and I ran out of money. And for 18 months, we didn't shoot anything. Um, and uh, we shot again in April of 17. And we shot uh, five uh, shooting days over a period of 2017. And then there was just a long, long post-production process uh, because the the problem is that I wanted to hire the best people, but I couldn't afford the best people. So I did hire the best people, but 
they have to have regular jobs because you can't pay them the rates that right. that 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 they deserve if they were if this was their full time job. So I did what I could, and it it, it caused a lot of delays, and uh, it did allow for one uh, additional sequence to be animated that wasn't originally intended as an animated sequence. Uh, the animator Alan Marcus, who who did the two animated sequences in the film, and the storyboards and the amazing poster, um, I needed a transitional sequence, and uh, it was a dream scene, and we couldn't shoot it. And she said, I could just rotoscope it. And I said, you can just do that. And so it gave, because of that lengthy amount of time, it gave her time to what, create what is an extraordinary sequence uh, filled with so much detail that even someone watching it once or twice will not pick up all the little jokes she threw in from what was initially just a two paragraph description in the first draft of the script. And it was part of the first draft, but you know, as I pared the script down to some 99 pages that we shot with, it was not intended, it, you know, that version was not in the shooting script, but I just, if she was gonna animate it, I could just go back to the ridiculous version that I came up with initially and I just gave it to her and she went with that. As a director, how do you, how do you feel about that when you get someone who just takes whatever you have, um, whatever you've worked with and conceived and then they just take it off in another, direction and add something to it. Um, how, how do you, when someone's approaching you with an idea, do you say, yeah, let's run with it and we'll, and we'll see? Or do you, um, are, you, are you a little hesitant because you've already gone through writing the, writing the script and you have sort of a set vision for how it is? Are, are you uh, very, typically very willing to uh, jump off when someone says, hey, I have an idea, let's try it? Yeah, well, absolutely. Um, um, uh, I'm I'm big on as much preparation, but um, I, I want people to experiment if 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 necessary. The you know obviously with a script that was originally that long, the whole thing was completely overwritten, and it was it actually oddly enough it was so overwritten it made casting very easy. Once we actually got uh, with some actors that that uh, that I you know wanted you know wanted for the film, because. Uh, there were each there was there were char each character and there are a lot of characters in the film had two sort of show-stopping monologue scenes in the in the script, and so they would start with the first scene when they'd audition. Those were their sides, and then this, when if there was a callback, then they would do the second scene. And almost all of those scenes end up in the final movie. Um, some of them have got cut out, but like almost verbatim. So they didn't require a lot of improv. I mean, I don't need them to stick to the letter of the law. I would just say, you know, if they change some words around because it's easier to say, I have no problem with that because it's not that it ha I'm not David Mamet where you got to pronounce the commas. I don't, you know, it's get to the joke or get to the plot point. I mean, that's that's what's the important part. Like I need, you know, we need to understand this piece or this part has to be funny. And if, you know, if you get there and it's funny or this is a, 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 a you know, this makes you tongue tied, we'll we redo it. There's plenty of scenes where we just like, okay, say it a different way if it's easier for you. You know, here's the joke I'm after, or here's what I need to come out here. I'm absolutely fine with that. I mean, I wouldn't want, uh, you know, someone who's lighting the film to improvise. Maybe that's a bad idea. Right. Um, but in terms of on set, yeah. I mean, I on this film, we rarely did a lot of takes, but not because I was strict, but because the actors nailed it. I mean, it was, other, unless it was a technical issue, I don't remember doing more than four or five takes on anything. Um, there was one scene in the film that was much, much longer and it's beautifully done, but it only about three or four minutes of it ended up in the final film because it just kind of stopped the movie dead, but it ran for 10 minutes. And it was just these actors, six or seven of them in a room talking for 10 minutes straight. And I think that the un uncut version is really good, 
but it, it just, you know, stopped the movie cold because you had what is essentially a minor character telling three stories for 10 minutes. And in the final film, he only tells one. But um, yeah, I, you know, I would consult with the actors, you know, they would say, oh, try it this way. And that's fine. I mean, again, I'm not a stickler for it. Um, you don't want to improvise too much as long, but again, as long as you get to the joke or get to the plot point or get to the serious moment, I don't know why anyone would have to be so strict. I mean, all I'm worried eventually about is, can we make the day? Can we, can we do this quickly enough? And I shoot pretty quickly. I mean, there was a, a day on a pickup day where we did um, 18 sequences on 10 locations in under 12 hours uh, with about 15 different actors. And we included about half an hour of ADR that we recorded in the basement while a scene upstairs was being lit. And we just moved from place to place to place. And it was all like, okay, we need this part of the scene, this part of the scene. Oh, this scene was doubled by a different person and we got that side, but we need the dialogue because that person wasn't available. And you'd think, well, that scene, that day was probably a mess. Most of it ends up in the movie and you can't tell the difference between one thing or the other, honestly. And you know, you're matching things that were shot two and a half years before. Nobody can tell. I mean, again, if you're, if you're noticing continuity errors, the movie lost you anyway. So it doesn't, you know, I, I can't worry about that stuff if I've, if I've missed something, uh, unless it's so transparently bad and distracting, then it doesn't matter. Right. I'm trying to remember the film noir movie. Um, I know it's, it's one of the all time classics uh, the neighbor, what it's escaping me. Uh, but it, it's at some point, someone went to the writer and said, Maltese Falcon. Well, thank you. Thank you. I did. I knew it was, I knew it was something like that where they went to the writer and said, Hey, I don't know, you know, who killed, uh, whichever victim. And then it, the yeah. writer said, I, I, I don't know. It, at some, at some point, it is tough to tie everything in together uh, neatly on screen. Well, of course, and 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 let me say this. Um, uh, let, let me talk uh, talk out of school a little bit. I know you've already seen the film. Whatever you thought of it, I would hope that it's at least coherent, and we don't have massive plot holes all over the place. No, I I, I was able to t to keep track of everything, so you're you're all set in that regard. Good. I'm glad I'm glad we're at the level of coherence. Oh, always a plus. Yeah. Um, and actually, uh, one one major plus, you already touched on this, uh, and one of the first things that stood out to me was the diverse cast. That's something, again, in a horror film, like you mentioned, isn't something that we're used to seeing. Maybe we're seeing a little bit more now. Uh, was it important for you to bring in um, people to fit fit the neighborhood specifically? Or yeah, were, yeah, it was, or, yeah. And, and were, were you mostly going for... Uh, in the beginning where you, um, you wanted to incorporate um, this broader cast and then the, the neighborhood worked out, was it? Was no, it, I was, it, was it was always written that way and I couldn't conceive of it any other way. You couldn't include the, the plot points of the film, which is essentially that um, these people are thought of as disposable because of their race and class. And you couldn't, you know, basically the, you know, the military comes in to try to stop this viral pandemic and they can't do it. And they put up the fences and uh, um, it's made clear that, that part of the, the reason that they're, they're uh, fine with it is because they know exactly who the people that comprise the neighborhood are um, and what their class is. And, you know, I, I, even though there are some very silly elements in the film, I was absolutely conceiving of that from the beginning of, if you, d you know, when you see a viral pandemic movie, you rarely have to deal with the actual what if these people don't already have like 
idyllic lives. Like, you know, I, I think of something like the crazies or the remake anyway, where they're out in the middle of nowhere and it, you know, you don't, you don't have the, you know, inner city version of it. I mean, you know, the comedic version is something like Shaun of the Dead, which I was, you know, obviously emulating in a way, but I wanted it to be, you know, not necessarily like a hundred percent realistic because obviously certain things that happen in the film are not, you know, overtly realistic. Um, but I didn't, there were certain things that were important to me. One, that no characters were stupid. Um, it's very easy uh, to solve plot problems if you make your characters dumb um, because you just have them do a stupid thing. And what I was conscious of is that these people have aspirations. And so they talk, they talk in certain ways where they're kind of bumping against the limits of their intelligence sometimes. So they stumble, they say certain things that are awkward and they get caught in those situations. They don't quite manage it. And then, you know, I wanted to have that awkward interaction, but I didn't want them to be dumb. Um, I, I thought it was, that was very important, but also that, yeah, the, the, the racial component was just natural because as I said before, you know, that's not what Germantown doesn't look like me. So right. why should, why should a movie about Germantown, you know, all, still look like me? That doesn't, it doesn't make any sense to do it that way. So I was, I had always conceived of it that way. It was not, um, let's shake things up. It just, you know, it made the most sense to do it that way. Of course, it makes it, uh, the irony of course is it makes it harder to uh, market overseas uh, because the common wisdom is even if it's a horror film, which you can sell without names, uh, foreign audiences are apparently not interested in uh, films with uh, black leads or Hispanic leads in them, at least American ones. So, um, I, I mean, who's to know if that's true, but that's what sales agents will tell you. That's what distributors will tell you. And that's apparently, you know, common knowledge. And I knew that going in, but I also knew, all right, well, I can't control the, the audience that won't accept these people for who they are, even if part of the concept is that I'm accepting them for who they are. There's not, you know, there's not a lot of judgment in the film. At least I don't, I don't think so. Right. And I think one thing that comes off is that even if you don't agree with there's a, there's a few different perspectives that are um, that come out in the film, but even if you don't agree with the perspective, everyone at least has the chance to make a point, uh, whether you agree with it or not. And sometimes that might lead to undoing, especially when everyone comes together and you're in the, the small situation and we start to get a little claustrophobic. And uh, but I, I thought that was nice about how you were able to give everyone their their stage just for a little while and they could and, voice and, their and, opinion. Yeah. and some of those characters are wrong they right. say they state right. things that are just genuinely wrong and right. uh, what's what's um different about um the film in a certain way is um the characters try to handle what is a very stressful situation and maybe overcompensate a little bit and there are characters who don't handle it so well and um, someone might say, well, that person, uh, someone said to me, well, that person is actually right. And I would say, oh, I know that person who, who didn't handle it well is right. Uh, that was intentional. Uh, I, I, when we were shooting those sequences, um, I'm, I'm talking around, the, you know, so as not to give it away. When we were shooting those sequences, I told the cinematographer and the other camera operator, I said, make sure that that character, that you're focused a little bit on that character, because that, that character is actually the only person who's dealing with this as a person who might normally do it. So think of that, that person as that's actually who our focus is, even though that's a minor character. Like, I think that's the only reasonable one of the group, even though I think everyone is genuinely reasonable throughout it because everyone reacts differently to stress. 
I don't know if that makes sense. I realize I've, for your audience, I've talked around it. You know probably exactly what I'm talking exactly. about. But uh, when the audience sees the film, they'll go, hey, why did that person, re- that, is that person the villain? And I'd say, no, I understand their reaction completely. Right. It's it's uh, difficult, especially uh, before uh, this comes out, to, to talk around the little uh, holes because you don't want to give away. And not that I'm saying anything. This, in the horror movies, you don't want to say, all right, the monster is behind the closet in this scene, right. but not this scene. So uh, it, it is difficult to talk in uh, sort of vague and specific at the same time. Um, and one thing, uh, in addition to different um, ethnic and cultural perspectives, uh, you also have your characters coming uh, from different um, points of view as they are dealing with this um, this virus. So you have the, the wanderer, uh, everyone who's held up in the basement, and the, uh, the government as well. Um, how did you arrive at these different points of views uh, for storytelling? In terms, well, I, initially the early drafts had so many characters, like there were 70 speaking parts. And the final movie has something like, I think about 45, um, which is still too many for a movie that only runs, you know, 96 minutes pre-credits. Um, I was always keeping uh, Michael Mann's heat in mind because that's three hours long and he's got like a hundred speaking parts. And that's that kind of ambition. You know, you're not like, oh, I'm like Michael Mann. It's more like, okay, that's sort of your upper limit. And I have to keep cutting down or combine people. And it made it uh, it's considerably more difficult to go, all right, I, I have to cut cut things out. But I was always conscious of having as many different points of view as possible. Um, and, you know, certain people were based on people I've known or people that I, you know, w- was uh, amused by. So the, the villains in the film are based on uh, uh, what if Roy Cohn and Joseph McCarthy were in a sexual relationship. And, um, but they- Something they, I haven't quite uh, thought of before. You know? <laughs> but that was, that's what I told the actors. Right. And I said, here's, here's the premise. And, you know, you're just flirting with each other in every scene and everyone else is, a, is, is just a distraction to you. And, and it's just like, you're, you're, this is flirting. That's all it is. And the dialogue doesn't make that completely overt, but it's there. And um, so their scenes are more playful, even though they're also menacing and they're probably the most disturbing scenes to watch. Uh, because of how unfortunately resonant the film became uh, because of their discussing, you know, quarantines and um, high death counts and, and uh, you know, that the government is more interested in hiding the high death counts from the press uh, rather than um, reveal the you know, real reason and, and that a lot of this stuff is based on, you know, the, you know race and, and, and class and stuff like that without giving away too much. I don't know if I gave it away. That happens in about the first half hour, so I don't know. I know my my theory on this is if it's in the trailer and, you know, it's, it's a safe space uh, okay. for that. that at least, the scene I'm discussing is not in the trailer, but it's right. like the, the next time right. they appear. It, it fits within the logical premise. And actually, that's something at this point, I think everyone uh, is very familiar with the movie, maybe without necessarily knowing the movie because some of this plays in or a lot of this plays into 2020 and where we are now with a, a virus and a pandemic and uh, everyone being sort of left to their uh, own devices and well that obviously there's a societal effort but uh, left into their own devices in terms of being held up in a small place with 
uh, lots of people. And um, how did you feel about? Obviously, you couldn't, you didn't see this this year unfolding the way it has. But how did you feel about releasing a movie that is suddenly timely? Um, I felt okay with it. I mean, certain people watch certain scenes and it makes them very uncomfortable. And then other people like, how did you predict this almost on the nose? And I'm not a, I'm not a genius. It, some of this just seems sort of an obvious progression on where you would go take, take a basic, you know, genre premise and then just keep exaggerating. And, you know, the film goes in goofier ways than most people probably would expect. You know, there's a lot of making fun of genre tropes. Um, and it doesn't, you know, I was aware that it became a problem. It, the, you know, the irony of the film was literally finished the week that Pennsylvania was quarantined, like that same weekend, I think the day before, uh, uh, I was told by my boss, uh, yeah, don't, don't come into the office. Um, and it doesn't, yeah, I don't have an issue with it. I mean, you know, what did everybody do as soon as uh, they were stuck inside? They they watched Outbreak, they watched Contagion. You know, my film is less realistic than Contagion, but maybe it's more fun. Um, I don't know. That's up to the, it's in the eye of the beholder. Although the, the way this year is un, unfolding, you know, week by week, who, who knows, uh, you know, what, if, if it becomes a little bit more realistic than, uh, than we thought. Well, in terms of uh, yeah. contagion being sort of a point by point of how this would right. work, and mine is over a short period of time. I mean, right. the the alternate title was going to be "Bad Day in Nice Town," um, and it, yeah, it, it was never going to be like this is going to take place over a year period. I, I didn't, I never conceived of it that way. Uh, I wanted it to be compressed. I wanted everything to feel very tightly constructed, right. and there's a there's some stuff in the film that most people won't notice, but it the transitions were written into the script, which is not how you'd normally do anything. But they were lit, like, if somebody has a line of dialogue and then we'd cut to somewhere else and they'd be following that conversation, even though they're totally different people somewhere else. So all of the video and the audio transitions were absolutely written into the script. And we tried to retain as much of them, as many of them as possible. But the idea there was, how do we keep it so everything feels connected? And that was one way of doing it was going, oh, well, if we literally have it so one person has a conversation and then we just go right, you know, there's there's a moment in the script where, and in the movie where someone says, uh, you know, says, uh, that's a good, good point. And then immediately we cut to someone saying, no, I do not consider that to be a good point. And they're on the phone and they're talking to someone else. And it's an unrelated thing, but, you know, it helps the editing. It's snappier. It tends to be funny when that happens. And I, I wanted that to to feel very tightly knit. And you, if you were going to spread it out over however long Contagion takes place, was that a couple of weeks, a month? I, um, I haven't seen it. Okay. I haven't seen it in 10 years, but let's say it's, it's like a couple of weeks at least. You couldn't really do that, even if you got like a big ensemble right. cast. And I, yes, I, I, in terms of, yeah, everyone then watch, watch their pandemic move. Now I've always been concerned that eventually the movie will, the, the world will catch up to the movie, in which case we're in a lot of trouble. Um, because uh, the movie gets fairly dark and uh, in ways that uh, if the government tried to hide, they could probably get away with it, but you wouldn't want them to do that. Right. right. And uh, just to go on the lighter side of the movie, um, 
the movie's premiering uh, tomorrow night, Friday, uh, August 21st at uh, the Colonial, quote, premiering is in, uh, little, is in quotes, uh, tomorrow at the Colonial Theater uh, in Phoenixville, which is perhaps the most fun setting for a horror film. Of course, The Blob was filmed there, or scenes from The Blob were filmed there. How did you arrive at the Colonial Theater as the, as the site for the site and source for uh, people to see this film? Um, well, so virtual screenings became the way that you can you can get things seen right now, and um, uh, essentially, I, I you know pitched them. You know, I, I I live nearby, and I pitched them, and I said, you know, think of this as counter programming. Um, you know, the 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 lot of the stuff that's done in virtual screenings now is you know more staid art films. Nothing wrong with that. You know, as a film critic, I've seen a lot. I lot watch lots of staid art films. But I like the idea of like, you know, it being next to a documentary about John Lewis, you know, a serious, you know, a serious person, you know, a serious subject. And and uh, so that's what I did. I said, you know, I know that this, that, that the considering the content of the film, it will be, you know, the opposite of what you're doing, but maybe, maybe you, maybe it would work for you. And I, I guess it did because they, they took it on. Right, and sometimes the the blend is what what makes it fun. And everyone has their favorite type of movie, but just going and seeing something different, uh, especially now where you know we're all sitting at home, uh, you know, watching whatever's available, to have something new, different, and in our case, local, uh, is is fun. Um, and um, I don't want to be remiss on this like i said it's the it's the site of the blob you know pennsylvania has been the site of some uh, remarkable horror films uh, with some george romero as well are there any horror films that uh, you loved growing up that were now um that might have found their way into wait wait we don't kill me yeah so the horror films that were most influential well the film all right i'll just give you the, all the films that are that really were influential on in the film. There was obviously Peter Jackson's uh, Brain Dead or Dead Alive, as is known in this country. Shaun of the Dead. Uh, I, I rather like the remake of The Crazies. Um, so I was thinking of that. Um, but I'm gonna say a movie and you'd be like, if that, that was influential and it's not a hard film. It's called Something Wild. It's a Jonathan Demme film. Um, that was a huge influence on me in terms of the way that the film, that film changes tones so often and does it without uh, whiplash without the uh, the audience going wait what's going on so suddenly switching from uh, what begins as goofy comedy then to like a darker sex comedy then to a thriller then back to like a goofy comedy then back to a thriller and then you know it just keeps changing and you'd think that's never going to work but you know that's always been one of my favorite films so I was more emulating that than anything and I, I it, it's hard to say like I've seen so many horror films in right. a way that that the the script was constructed originally was I wrote down 60 ways I had never seen somebody die in a movie. And the first draft had 39 of those. And then eventually you can't have that much carnage in a film. Um, so I think I eventually pared it down to about 10 in which I had not seen certain ways that people were dying. I'm like, okay, well, let's do that. And then you change some of them or you cut some of them for, for money or time or, or, or that kind of thing. Um, so it was it was a, a lifetime of watching horror films that influenced what I did and did not do. I did not want to steal. If anything, if I if I stole from things uh, or 
emulated them. What it, it was Pauline Kael who said, um, uh, "An homage is stealing. Uh, that's not action. <laughs> that's not actionable." Um, so uh, I homaged uh, Big Trouble Little China quite a bit. Um, there's two gags in the film that are my versions, my my tip of the hat to that film in which uh, the big burly uh, hero uh, is not really the hero and he's actually a moron. Um, and the sidekick's actually the hero. Um, that that was deliberate on my part was, uh, let's, you know, do that. There's a, there's a reference that there were in fact originally two references to Monty Python and the Holy Grail. Now there's only one, but um, so those are, yes, it was a combination of things. I mean, I basically made a movie that I'd want to see and that's all you can hope for. Um, right. if, if, if you if you think that you'd want to see it somebody else might want to see it you'd think but i i right. find myself not being able to not having to worry about that going right. look if nobody ever sees this that you know independent filmmaking is a terrible way to make money um it's near nearly impossible so uh i might as well do something that is a not shameful and b that i would want to see originally it was it was conceived of as a movie that 14 year old boys would like and then I would I would sneak in all of the political points and all the social commentary that I really wanted. I initially conceived of it like one of the most influential movies on me, which is called Female Convict Scorpion, which is the best women in prison movie ever made. It's a Japanese women in prison movie. Uh, gets a couple of references in Kill Bill. But the point is that it's a, it was a uh, basically like the third movie on a triple bill and as long as it had sort of the Roger Corman aesthetic where, look, as long as you put in the right amount of nudity and the right amount of violence and to swim in a prison movie, we got to have, we got to have a cat fight. We got to have the sadistic warden. We got to have lesbians and we got to have, you know, just everything that would be in a women's prison movie. And in the it's middle just of the boxes. Yeah, exactly. And, and it checks all those boxes and it's an extraordinary movie. It's a surrealist masterpiece. It's a scathing commentary on the patriarchy in Japan. The lead character doesn't speak one word. It has camera work that you just cannot believe in which you're like, I don't even know where the camera is here. And I've seen millions of movies and I don't have no idea where they put it. And you just, it, every, every, anybody who watches it, I've made people watch it for 20 years. They're just put in a trance because that's the reaction you have. And it's a sequel. And the first movie is also very good. So I was like, so as long as I fulfill these little bits, as long as I have the right amount of, you know, sexuality and violence and I'll, I'll have fun with them then the rest of the movie is for me to do with what I want and so you have this mix of do I check off the boxes and did I enjoy doing the checking box? yes and it, within within this the sexuality did I make fun of what would normally be in a horror film I was are people going to pick up on that maybe I don't know I mean the first scene is so baroque that I think people might assume that they're getting a regular horror film and then it takes a bit of a turn and makes most people uncomfortable, which was the whole point. Right. And, uh, the, the, the first scene, uh, which people will see, uh, is, um, is sort of a good introduction to this is what we're up against. Yes. And, and it was, uh, something I took from, uh, this is going to say another strange parallel, Robert Altman's The Player, on his audio commentary, he mentioned that he believed in equal opportunity nudity. And I thought, okay, let's go with equal opportunity violence. Um, if you think that this is, that this is going to be your standard misogynistic horror film, 
I mean, I'm, you know, yes, sure, if that's what you think, but it's not going to be. Um, so the whole point of the first sequence is to throw the audience off for 10 minutes to the point where most people have spent that time recovering. And then when you, the way you construct it is like, okay, I've got to get my exposition in for the beginning, but they'll, they'll spend the first 10 minutes recovering so I can just dole it out in uh, maybe subtle, maybe less than subtle ways and, and not just have it just die on the vine. Um, I was always thinking of a, a Philip Ridley movie called The Reflecting Skin with Viggo Mortensen, which opens with um, children blowing up a frog with straws. And then as their teacher's walking down the road, they smack the frog and the blood flies all over the teacher's face and they scream. And the movie is a, a wildly pretentious and surreal movie. Um, and you spend 10 minutes recovering from that just image and, and the frog that, that, that he gets away with laying out the plot points in a staggeringly heavy-handed fashion. But I was always conscious of that after I, after I watched that movie. I'm like, right, that's how you do it. You open with a big shock and then you could totally get away with all the things I'm going to have to do anyway, and people will forgive it. Right. It's very uh, anti the slow burn, slow rollout. It's we're just going to burn everything right from the get go. Yes. Well, thank you very much uh, for taking the time out and good luck with the premiere tomorrow night. Uh, thank that, you very much. Like I said, that will be at the Colonial Theater's uh, website uh, and people can uh, purchase streaming uh, tickets from there. Where can people follow the movie to uh, check up with its progress? Uh, so go to waitwaitdon'tkillme.com. Um, I will be updating that depending on, you know, it'll be playing at the Colonial and then if it moves on to, you know, other places, it will always be mentioned where exactly to find that, you know, on the website. Great. Uh, thank you very much, uh, Adam Lippi. Uh, good luck with Wait, Wait, Don't Kill Me. Thank you very much. To learn more about the Philadelphia Globe's focus on pop culture and emerging artists, visit philaglobe.com, P-H-I-L-A globe.com. Ambient music is used courtesy of Joseph McDade. To support Joseph, you can visit josephmcdade.com.